I just wanted to say that the Qur'an that we're looking at all have a relationship to the subject. And the thing about the Qur'an is sometimes you don't see the relationship. And that's what takes what's called tadabbur, which is to reflect uh, deeply about something. Because the Qur'an says, Don't they penetrate this Qur'an to its depth, you know? Penetrated. Dubar is the end of something. So you try to. Yatadabbar is to attempt to find the end. So don't you attempt to, to find. You're never going to get to the end because it's karamallah. But the yatadabbar is to really reflect, to try to get to the other side. So it's all related. And one of the things about the Quran, there's a miracle of Quran, which is the miracle of tarabut, which is how the Quran is unified. One of the things about most books is that there's a superficial uh, unity to most books. But if you begin to penetrate it and get into not the context, but what they call the subtext, the, the book begins to actually fall apart. And this is, there's a whole school of literary criticism called deconstructionism, which is based on doing that, on deconstructing texts and, and showing that, they, in fact, that there's not a unity to the theme and things like that. And the thing about the Quran is at the superficial level, it seems very ununified. It doesn't seem to have a theme that's holding it together. But as you begin to attempt to deconstruct or go dive into it, what you see is that it's actually completely connected. And the, my favorite analogy for that is the stars. If you look up at the stars and have never looked at the night sky, it looks like it's a, a jumble of lights that has no connection. But if you begin to observe it every day, uh, and you can't do it for one lifetime, it's taken millennia to even understand what we know today. And even what we know today is like somebody who threw a net out into the ocean and he pulls in all the fish and he determines that's what's in the ocean based on the size of his net. So human knowledge, what we know is like throwing a net into the ocean of knowledge and we, we've pulled in a certain amount, but it's only what our net contains. And there's different people have different intellectual capacity. The Quran mentions about uh, you know, that when Allah revealed the water, it flowed in the valleys according to the, the measurement of the valley. And Ibn Abbas said it means that when Allah sent down the Qur'an, every human being will get a different amount of understanding from the Qur'an, like that valley in which the water flows. Some valleys can take a lot of water, and other valleys can't take very much. And human beings are like that, and there's a hikmah, there's a wisdom in that. So one of the things of this connection between the Qur'an is the connection between a chapter and then the chapter that follows it. And Ali Imran is what precedes An-Nisa. And of all the women, the highest woman, the one that was chosen above women, was the mother of Mary, alayhi salam. And, and there's a strong opinion of many scholars, including Ibn Abi Zayl al-Qayrawani, that she was actually uh, from the the Nibiyin, that she actually received revelation. There's, it's, it's a strong opinion. The, the majority, Jamhur al-Ulama, the majority of scholars say that the prophets are, are from male uh, only. But there's a strong opinion. It's not a weak opinion. It's not, and Ibn Hazm and others were absolutely convinced 
of that. So Ali Imran ends, you see the Maryam is the fruit of Ali Imran, uh, which is that prophetic line. And so the prophetic line of Bani Israel ends with a woman because she is the one that gives birth to Isa who doesn't have a father. So he he's actually comes through the prophetic line through a woman, which is interesting also from the Prophet Sallallahu family, which is through Fatima So you have a similar, the beginning of the prophetic uh, offspring of the Prophet in, in other words, the prophetic line is through Fatima and not through a son. So Ali Imran is followed by An-Nisa. Now if you look, uh, last week we looked at the beginning, which is all about taqwa and having awareness of your kinship bonds that are from the womb. And the womb is what woman from one cognate, it's the man who has a womb. Because traditionally, mensch in German, which is where we get men or man from, was a uh, noun that applied to both male and female. It didn't have a gender-specific meaning. And so woman is also a mensch, a man. So and this is what insan is. Insan applies to both male and female. And then you get dhakar and untha, are the two that come out of that, the male and the female. So if you look at the end of Al-Imran, which the end of chapters often are deeply related, in fact, according to Ibn Zubair, always related to the beginnings of the next chapter. There's a thematic relationship between one that preceded and one that follows. If you look at the end of Al-Imran, in which this verse is the the 200th verse of this chapter and it is ya ayyuhalladhina amanu sabiru wa sabiru wa rabitu wa taqullaha la'allakum tuflihun it's o you who believe sabiru have sabr patience wa sabiru and have musabara both of these words isbiru wa sabiru are from sabara yasbiru and the, the root of this word, sabara, is to be patient or to bear something because that's what patience is. Patience is bearing something and accepting it. And the command here is to, to be patient. If you believe, isbiru wa sabiru. Ya isbiru wa sabiru. Have patience and have musabara. Musabara is patience with others. So the first is have patience with yourself. And then the second is have patience with, your, with others. Because all relationships in the world are only of two kinds. Relationships with yourself and relationships with others. That's it. Now, the idea of a relationship between yourself and between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's two ways you can look at that. One of them is that in reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was and nothing was with him, and he continues to remain as he was. In other words, your contingent existence in relationship to Allah is canceled out. And that's one of the meanings of la ilaha illallah. That there's no reality except Allah. Which is not to say this is Allah. It's to say that this is really, it's not real. Because Allah is the only haq. 
but he created this with the haq. So what that means is it has contingent reality. So we're not like Hindus that say that this is an illusion, although there is an illusory aspect to the world. There's an element in the world that is, it's an illusion. And we know that now. I mean, you can go into, they can, they can put you in a virtual game now, and you'll think that what's happening to you is happening. You, in other words, you can be, they'll fly you up in a plane or you can be in a, on a racetrack driving in a car and, and your emotions, your adrenals and all of your emotions are going to be the same as if it was this, right? That's an analogy in a sense for what's happening here because in the end, most of what's happening, they're mental formations that we set up in our mind and you can get so caught up in that that you, you lose sight that it's, it's a virtual reality, that this is a type of virtual reality. But it, it does have reality in that it exists by Allah. It's contingently existent. And so your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a real one. It's not unreal, nor is it an illusion. But your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, has both elements in other words, it has the aspect of sabr and musabra. It has both elements. So it, this is in relation to how we are in the world. All right? And in the world, it's ultimately going to be you and those things that Allah has given you taklif to do. And then you and those people that you're going to interact with. Concerning those things with which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, Isbiru, the first and foremost is knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That coming to know Allah is a process. You don't get an illumination. There's a process of coming to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It begins with infancy, and as you move on and get older, it continues. So initially, a child, when it comes into the world, it's in this state of unity. It hasn't differentiated yet. And then it begins to move into differentiation. And during that process, the parents are entrusted with giving that child guidance. In other words, making the experience of coming into the world of differentiation meaningful and reminding them of where they came from. You have to remind the child where they came from. So that, that becomes an obligation. So the, the process of coming to know Allah is taklif. It's actually we are responsible. Know that there is nothing worthy of worship except Allah. So that's a taklif that Allah has given you. And you have to be patient with that process. All right. And there's degrees of that, of knowledge of Allah. The people that know the Prophet said, Ana akhshakum lillah. I have more awe of Allah than any of you. And the reason for that is because I know Allah better than any of you. The people who have real awe are the people who know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the more you know, the more awe you uh, obtain. And so that is sabr. Because you can increase in awareness of Allah. It's not like where you're at now is where you have to be for your entire life. It's, in fact, it shouldn't be. There should be an increase. And you're going to go through, just like planets, they have retrograde motion. 
right, in their orbit around uh, the sun, you'll see a planet. It, it's not doing it in reality, but it's how we experience it. You'll see the, the, the planet moving with the rest of the stars, and then for a period of time it starts going retrograde, which in, in old cosmologies they thought it was a bad time. That's the way the nafs is. You can, be, you, know, you can be in this orbit of divine obedience, but then you go into this retrograde motion, which is ma'asiyah, it's disobedience. And those things, there's a wisdom in that, and there's also uh, lessons to be learned from it, but it's something that's to be struggled with. It's not something that you submit to, you struggle with it. So he says, uh, so that's sabr ala ma'rifah of Allah. And then the prophets of what Nabuwa is, coming to know who the prophets were, why they came. The next is knowing Adal, which is you have to learn Adal. And Adal has two aspects. It has justice with yourself and justice with others. So with, but learning that is a process. You have to come to understand what justice is to the best of our ability because we're finite. And then how to apply that towards ourselves by not oppressing, because oppression is the opposite of adal. Dhulm is the opposite of adal. And what oppression is, is putting something where it does not belong. If you put your limbs where they don't belong, it's called disobedience, and you have oppressed. If you take somebody's wealth and, and misappropriate it, you put something that does not belong to you where it does not belong, that's oppression to another. If you steal something, it's putting it where it doesn't belong, because you took it out of its place and put it in a place it didn't belong, which was your own pocket. So that is the essence of what, what oppression is, and learning what is halal, what is haram, and then struggling with that also. And then also the idea of ma'ad, eschatology, which is what happens after death. Uh, there's a patience in learning that, right? You have to learn what happens after life. And, and there's a process, and we're supposed to know that. You should know, you know about ba'ath and, and resurrection, and then the hashar, the nashar, the mawqif, the hisab, the mizan, the sirat, the hawd. I mean, all these things are part of aqidah, and that's part of what Allah is saying is, is to come to know, is understanding those things. And then you move to the sabr of the ada' al-fara'id, which is fulfilling those obligations. So you've learned... You've learned the adal, and part of the adal is knowing the justice, is knowing why you were created. We can look at, in the Islamic tradition, and every, every system of philosophy or religion deals with five essential questions, and Islam deals with these essential questions. The first one is the cosmological question, where did all this come from? That's a question that Islam deals with. Where did all this come from? These are the five big questions. There's a lot of little questions in the world and a lot of people spend their lives in those little questions and they never get to the big ones. But the big ones are always confronting them and there's only five basic ones. That's it. And if you learn those five and occupy your life with those five, then you've done yourself uh, a service because they're really the only ones of worth or weight. So the first one is that cosmological question. Where did this come from? And the Qur'an gives an answer. If you ask them who created the heavens and the earth, they will respond, Allah. So all of this, we believe, came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is a question of ultimate concern. Where did this come from? The next question 
is what they call the eschatological question, which is how do we know anything, right? In other words, how, what is knowledge and how is knowledge obtained? And the Quran answers that question again in the beginning of the Quran. Read in the name of your Lord who created. Allah is the one that taught the human being. And he also said, how do we know things? We know things through language. The difference between the human and other creatures is that humans know language. Now, one of the things about language, Chomsky has what he calls the LAD, the language acquisition device, which he's saying that language is inherently programmed in the human being. In other words, it's, it's there. Now, if you look at what a child learns in the first few years of life, by the time it's two and a half or three, it's speaking formulated sentences. Those sentences are much more complicated and difficult than basic mathematics. Two plus two equals four. To say, I want to go out and ride my bike, that is much more complicated than two plus two equals four. And yet, a child of three can say the second and cannot say the first. It can't understand it. So where did its ability to acquire language come from? He imprinted, because allama means to imprint something. And that's why the qalam, he taught with a pen. The original pens were into clay tablets. That's why the earliest tablets uh, that we have, the earliest writing is clay that has these imprints. That's what the alama means. Allama means to imprint something. And so the human being has certain things imprinted in him that begin to emerge and throughout your life at different stages of your life you're designed to be ready for something at certain stages you're not ready for geometry at the age of seven you can't understand it I mean there's absolute geniuses which is like the Arabs say somebody who's unusual or out of the ordinary is taken into consideration but not used as a standard to assess other things so you're not ready for certain concepts certainly the concept of death you cannot understand that concept in any real deep level until you begin to move into the age of Tamiz so this idea of eschatology with how we know things and the Quran tells us that